Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hey, Slow Burn listeners, we have something special for you this week. It's an episode of Broken Record, a music podcast from Pushkin Industries, co-hosted by Malcolm Gladwell and music producer Rick Rubin. In the episode, Malcolm and Rick talk to Questlove. He talks about the music of his childhood and about his memories of the move police bombing in Philly. You'll also hear Quest get behind the drums to show the evolution of his playing. And he turns the tables to ask Rick Rubin about his own hip-hop history, including working on the debut albums from LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys. Check out this episode and subscribe to Broken Record wherever you get your podcast. And you can see some amazing studio session photos on Instagram at the Broken Record Pod. I want to talk a little bit about Philadelphia. Okay. Particularly, you're born in 71. So 71. Mm-hmm. You come of age in a very sort of strange period in the history of Philadelphia. Right. Frank Rizzo. Mumia yeah. Jamal, uh, Move, I mean, all kinds of strange, Teddy Pendergrass, I mean, it's like... I, I lived on Osage Avenue. Oh, wow. The May 13th, 1985, um, I'll never forget, see, for, for every other Philadelphian, they remember every detail of that day, because that was the, the, the Move bombing. Yeah. Um, but I got dumped by my first girlfriend in the ninth grade that day. So for all other reasons, that was like the worst day ever in my life. <laughs> so just every detail of that night I remember. Like I remember Tony Orlando guested on the Cosby show. That was like the last episode of the season one. Yeah. I remember the first time I ever heard of uh Bustle in Your Head Growl, the legend of backwards masking of Led Zeppelin. Uh-huh. I never even heard of Let's have them before then, but 2020 did this report on like how our children are being possessed by demons. And I just remember seeing a quote in these very weird fonts, bustle in your head growl. Yeah. Um, and and then we got a, a, a note on the block that if that fire continues in the next two hours, we'll have to vacate our house. By that point, when I got home, the bomb had just went off eight blocks away. And then by... The time 2020 was on around 10 o'clock, it was like maybe six or five or six blocks away. So, wow. So just just so people know, MOVE is a, a black nationalist movement, yeah. kind mm-hmm. of communal, based in West Philadelphia. Right. And they had a, a kind of run-in with the city. They had a run-in with the city in 1977 um, that, you know, uh, our Philadelphians know what it's like especially if you were alive at the time, to be under the tutelage of Frank Rizzo. Mm-hmm. Like, all that we see now in this current administration is no surprise to us because Philadelphians lived... I mean, this is a guy that, like, routinely had a, a baton on his hip, even at, like, uh, you know, uh, black tie dinner affairs and whatnot. So, yeah. um, He's like the prototypical modern American fascist. Yes, like, he... I grew up with that image. So, you know, we were always aware of that particular political figure. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus, I mean, you know, I don't know that, I don't know if that makes us more woke than others or whatever, but growing under Mayor Rizzo just 
prompts that out of you. Anyway, so new uh, move the organization. Um, I, I I believe that it's it started over like a, a a noise ordinance, and then it concluded with you know um, all of them coming out of the house uh, naked, I guess, to humiliate them or whatnot. So like really, the spark started in 1977, and then cut to eight years later on Osage Avenue, the block I grew up on. Um, you know, oftentimes uh, people just saw them as radical. Like it's weird now. Like you see people with dreadlocks, you see them, mm-hmm. you know, like you think like, oh, okay, that person has knowledge or they're, you know, but, you know, back then it was just like, you know, it was radical. Like you saw a person with dreadlocks, you just thought like, especially if you like raised Southern Baptist, like Christian, you, you just thought like, oh, these are heathens or whatever. And, um, I know that they believed in, um, they were like the first vegans I ever knew, um, that they were self-educated and that sort of thing. Like their kids, wait, you're, you self-teach your kids at home and that sort of thing. So it was just like such a radical, like we just always looked at them at different as different. And then, mm-hmm. um, I just remember like, uh, from May 12th, from, from May 11th on th- through May 13th, like it was just nothing but a city under siege. Which Rizzo, could, Rizzo well, essentially firebombed. Firebombed. Not their, Rizzo, uh, Wilson Good oh, was Wilson our, Good. yeah, he, oh, right. I guess there, I don't know what, the thing is, you have to understand that homes are connected, uh, row homes are connected, similar to that of, of like some spots I've seen in Brooklyn what are connected together. So we're not separate. So if you bomb one house, you're basically going to affect. Yeah. the entire block and i i think their logic was like we'll just put this little explosion on top explosive device on top of their roof and then scare them out of the house which they didn't they were like well kill us so i think of the 13 people that were in the house mm-hmm. um 11 died and only two survived ramona africa and birdie africa i think birdie just passed away so i think of mm-hmm. of that initial i hadn't realized this is literally so the the cops firebomb the houses where Move was living. Mm-hmm. The fire spreads, and you guys are literally a couple blocks away. The fire spreads, and yeah, like it started on Fifty Eighth Avenue. I lived on Fifty Fifty Second was like the epicenter of West Philadelphia. Um, and I mean, at, at the time, I didn't feel, even though there there were gunshots and everything, like even like a like our lead anchor, you know, like when. News, news of people like send their people out in danger. Like if there's like bad weather or something, like you know they're blowing in the wind and a tornado or that sort of thing. Like they're sending out like Jack Jones, like he's hiding behind like a a Cadillac, and you hear in the background, and it's like Beirut, and he's giving like, okay, this is Jack Jones reporting live from Larchwood Avenue. Da, da, da. So mm-hmm. it was that type of action. We did, we didn't take it. We didn't take it seriously until maybe around 8 p.m. that we realized, like, oh, the entire block burnt down. And then the entire next block burnt down. And then the entire next block burnt down. Three city blocks just burnt down. So um, they finally contained the fire. But, you know, by 3 o'clock in the morning, it would have reached my neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Which would have been had a different outcome. So, I mean, I only bring this up because... We, you know, people always talk about how uh, how much the racial antagonisms in places like L.A. fueled mm-hmm. the rise of gangster rap and that, that kind of stuff. The racial situation in Philadelphia made L.A. Look, look like a picnic. It did, but, you know, the the one thing that we really didn't have that L.A. had was, I mean, we really, we squelched our, our gang culture. Mm-hmm. Like, that was, that was really over by the time I was born. I mean, gangs were a thing, of course, in the 50s and 60s, but um, by the time I was born, um, you know, my parents explained to me that West Philadelphia at one point was uh, an integrated kind of uh, neighborhood, middle-class neighborhood. Um, They once had like a a fashion boutique. My my dad, of course, by the mid-60s, he kind of retired from his doo-wop days, mm-hmm. my mom sort of retired from her uh, print model days and and they uh, had like a fashion boutique. But, you know, they would go to New York at the, you know, they were like 
a, a well-to-do high fashion boutique uh spot but once in 68 uh after the assassination of, of, of Martin Luther King um, and riots ensued throughout like a lot of uh, inner cities. Um, my dad basically said like white flight started around like 1969 or mid, mid 1968. Like mm-hmm. suddenly um, all the store owners who were white just fled to the suburbs and um, kind of, you know, left it as is, you know, dilapidated buildings, uh, neglected buildings and that sort of thing. And then, um, they decided to close their, uh, boutique down. And, uh, by 70, 71, the nostalgia era had come full circle and Dick Clark is, or, you know, he's throwing these shows at Madison Square Garden and the Philadelphia Spectrum and that sort of thing. And um, so I, I, by the time I was born, um, the oldies doo-wop nostalgia loop had just started. So mm-hmm. I I grew up thinking like Frankie Lyman and the teenagers were like brand new, like that type of thing. So <laughs> backstage, uh, you know, uh, I think there's a photo of uh, Jackie Wilson holding me. So I grew up backstage with, you know, just all the oldies, doo-wop legends. Yeah. Yeah. So in your household growing up, uh, your so your dad is is a has an extraordinary record collection. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are you what are you listening to as a as a as a kid? All right. So I grew up with three very distinct uh, record collectors. My dad was into what I would sort of jokingly say is the yacht rock of his day. He was into Mathis, Streisand, d- d- vocal groups. Like, he had pet sounds. So, you know, seeing pet sounds in my house as a kid, I was just like, uh, Beach Boys, whatever. But once I got older and realized, oh, their harmony game is bar none, then I. It, anybody like flaunting harmony to the next level, like my dad was on it, or vocals to the next level, because he was sort of like a Nat King Cole type. Uh, my mom was more funky and hip. She would buy records like a like a crate digger or a record collector, and in, in my day does. Like you look at the cover, oh, this is funky, it got to be something. Like that's how she collected records. Like the famous Ohio players. Oh, it's so funny you say that because uh, I get a copy of Honey when I'm six years old. And um, on the on the corner, it's like uh, this is January twentieth, uh, nineteen seventy six. Uh, happy fifth birthday, Amir. We love you very much, mommy and daddy. And I'm like, I still have that album cover. I'm like, yo, like you guys realize what you gave me, like. <laughs> For those like, who are not unaware, it's a, it is a very, very beautiful, very, very naked woman. Right. But they were just <laughs> like, we saw it as high art. And that's yeah. the thing. Even I didn't see it as salacious. Like, oh, my God, who's this one? Yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I just saw a theme of, okay, every Ohio player's album cover looks like Black Playboy. Um, my sister, uh-huh. blending in with her uh, middle school friends and eventually her high school friends, you kind of sort of have to adapt to their taste. So she's bringing home Bohemian Rhapsody. She's bringing home Bowie. She's bringing home Fall Cat. Like, so all that stuff. And the main rule in the household was don't touch my stereo. So I'm not allowed to choose what I want to hear. So I have to be forced to listen to what they want to hear. So I, I really had an adult's. Yeah. Uh, vocabulary with music by the time I, I was 10. How wait, wait, Rick, how similar is this to your musical childhood? I, I was just an obsessive music fan. I would hang out in record stores all day. and um, I remember that. That used to be a thing. I can remember the first time I was in a record store and I saw, now this is sort of, it's late for this because the record came out much earlier, but I remember finding the MC5 and first seeing that first album cover and then listening to it and thinking, well, this is during punk rock times, like, wow, this is, it's kind of like punk rock, but it's old, 
but it has that energy. It has a, like a frantic energy, and that really excited me. And then I can remember, okay, is there anyone else like the MC5? It's like, well, it's not exactly like them, but then it leads you to Iggy and the Stooges. And I can just remember these moments of um, revelation of hearing a new... I can remember the first time I heard the Ramones and just like didn't have any point of reference for it. Do we- I have a slight confession to make. Yeah. I hate to say this. I finally listened to the entire Ramones album from start to finish eight days ago, and I'm so mad that it took me so long to do it. What led you to do it? Okay, this is the lamest thing ever. I'm kind of at a at a creative uh, kind of fork in the road right now as far as DJing is concerned because a lot of the eclectic music I play, you know, appeals to a specific audience. And um, I'm trying to figure out more creative ways to bring them out. Because, of course, like, you know, the people that like the music that I like are older. They have kids. They're not coming out at 2, 3 in the morning. Um, So I'll say in the last year or so, I've been doing Saturday afternoon DJing and Sunday afternoon DJing. So that it's family friendly. Parents can come and, you know, relive their club days and the kids can, you know, have what you know it's 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 my it's my version of re, re, reinventing hip-hop because hip-hop's supposed to be a community-based afternoon sort of thing that sort of thing um and i did uh an ice skating rink of which i didn't have i knew it was going to be a lot of kids there and i was like all right well let me make sure that i'm playing kid-friendly stuff and whatnot and i just happened to just look on the internet i was like all right adult music that kids seem to like as well and of course uh Briskly, I can't pronounce it. Blitzkrieg Bop. Uh, was listed. And I was like, yeah, because they always sing that at sports uh, sports events. And I didn't have it, so I downloaded it. And I saw that, oh, all the songs are under two minutes and 30 seconds, two minutes and 30 seconds. And as a songwriter, as I spoke to you before, like not focusing on singles, um, I'm now obsessed with people that have had successful singles under three minutes because it's one thing to, you know, do these well thought out, you know, introspective 11 minute free jazz stuff. And, you know, the roots are such artists, but it's like, can we do, you know, Judy's a punk? Can we make an effective song with bare minimum? You know, in in three minutes, can we be just as effective? So now I'm trying to study minimal minimalist effectiveness. Interesting. And so, yeah, it's like as a writer, it's why I'm obsessed with commercials. Always been obsessed with commercials because they tell a story in thirty seconds. You you know, and if you are a writer and you know how hard it is to tell a story, mm-hmm. you're you put the person who writes the brilliant commercial at the top of the list. The only reason why I'm obsessed with this is because now that I work at The Tonight Show, we have to write eight-second jingles, of which you have to have narrative of what the title is, some verse about, you know, writing eight-second songs is sort of our version of commercials. So, How often, this is a question for both of you, as producers, how often do you say to the artist you're working with, make it shorter? (laughs) <laughs> I, I never do unless it, unless it's boring it's like it's really every every piece has the length that it wants to be i have a question for you yeah okay so fight for your right to party yeah i'll say eh, the last four years i heard the original demo version with extra verses in it and yada 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 so what and you know the, the I'm asking this mainly because I just read the Beastie Boy book. So in your head, how did you have that much discipline to know what to reduce? Like you're famous for reducing stuff, taking taking elements away so that it doesn't I honestly, distract. In, in that case, I don't remember it ever being longer than that. Well, there there's like an extra verse in there that was taken away, so... I wonder. I, I I'd, I'd love to hear it because I have no recollection of it ever being longer. I'll send In those it to days, you. it would be unusual for us to shorten anything. Really? Yeah. So even then, you weren't thinking like, okay, three minutes and thirty seconds. And... Never in my life have I thought that. <laughs> so you don't have Clive Davis ears and 
N- not in the least. Yeah, I'm, I'm. But you're so bullseye with it. Like you, it's my you taste. literally. It has to do with growing up where I grew up and listening to the Beatles. So the the first formative music for me was the Beatles, and those were short pop songs. So I had that uh, formula of goodness in me from the time I was a little kid. That was just all I knew that was good. And when I would hear something that felt like it got boring to me, right, it was too long. But some, you know, I like ten minute jams too. Well, I mean, my, one because... of my fa- one of my favorite groups is Trouble Funk, and if you listen to their music, it just right. goes forever. Right. Well, he he's being seriously modest right now, uh-huh. but like he literally, I mean, the most revolutionary thing that he brought to the world of hip hop was he literally invented the the three minute song. Like before him, even a song as 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 sticky and friendly as the message by Grandmaster Flash, that was still eight minutes. Planet Rock, because you're thinking of the club and keeping the groove lasting a long time, that sort of thing. You know, LL, like when I we got LL's record, I, yo, these songs are four minutes long. Like we never mm-hmm. even fathomed that you could have an effect of hip hop record. Or song to be three minutes and fifty seconds, like just seeing those times on the 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 Def Jam thing, I was just like, "This is weird." Like, what's going on here? But to you, that was just like, did anyone else like resist that at all? It was just based on growing up with the Beatles. That was it. It wasn't. It was not at all uh, premeditated in any way. It was natural to me. And when I would get, um, you know, I I collected twelve inch. 12-inch vinyl at that time because every hip-hop record came out 12-inch pretty much. That was the main format of the day. Right. So I would get these, you know, Jimmy Spicer records that were yeah. nine minutes long and it would be or 12 minutes long. And, mm-hmm. and it always seemed like they were made, they weren't made to listen to. They were made to dance to. Right. They weren't, you know, they weren't, it, it wasn't, they weren't long in service to the song. Right. And I've always wanted to work in service to the song whatever that is and and sometimes it's the whole side of an album sometimes it's three minutes no i'll I'll admit that you know i didn't know what a pop hook was or none of that stuff until it wasn't until i started djing like if you look throughout history every great producer has done a lot of hours djing somewhere rick's done it jimmy jam dr dre like his situation the reason why he's so good is because if you played the wrong song, the club might get shot up. So imagine <laughs> DJing under those those tense conditions. So it's it's but almost it's, like you have to have a winner out the gate. It's the hip-hop so. version of that famous statement, the prospect of a hanging in the morning concentrates the mind wonderfully. In this case, it's the prospect <laughs> of a shooting in the club. Yes. Concentrates yeah. the DJing wonderfully. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, can you... This is leads me to another thing that I've always been obsessed with, and that is that when you get immersed, as the two of you are in music, um, what happens when you listen to music that's not your own? Can you turn the critic off and ap- appreciate it with your, with a kind of um, without passing judgment, or are you actually producing the song in your head as you listen? Pretty much anything I hear, I'm always thinking, oh. I wish it was more like this or like like I just imagine it sounding different and it's hard to um hard to turn off the producer brain. I it's one of the reasons I really like listening to classical music and jazz because I don't I don't have that same feeling listening to that music, but listening to hip hop or listening to rock music or um more often than not I'm producing in my head. There's there's one example which would be fun to talk about cuz uh-huh. you're involved is the D'Angelo voodoo album to me is absolutely perfect it's it's the f- it's the first time i can remember listening through to an album wishing i had something to do with it because it was so good it was just oh, like man. oh my god this is this is everything i want an album to be and it was unlike anything i'd ever heard before such a scary time period man because 
virgin <laughs> wasn't wasn't seeing it that way. Oh man, there you know there was a lot of uh, okay. When will you guys actually start the real record now and stop messing around? And we're looking at each other like this is the record. You wait, know, wait, t- tell us how you got involved with D'Angelo and that album. Um, I met D'Angelo and Erica Badu coincidentally on um April Fools. 1996. I'm on tour with the Fugees and the Goody Mob. Uh, it is the Soul Train Awards weekend, one year before the Biggie tragedy. Um, and, you know, the Fugees were just beginning their, their, their crescent to the stars with the score album. So there was a lot of playful uh, sort of tension between the two groups. And... Um, you know, by this point, you know, the Roots become like such a well-oiled machine live. And like, okay, we got to kick their ass tonight. We're in L.A. We got to do it. And I remember getting on my drum set and seeing, I didn't know who Erica was. So I just assumed at the time that was his girlfriend. You know, she had the tall head wrap on. But I knew D'Angelo's silhouette because he was like front. I could see his silhouette front and center behind the lights. And I remembered that... uh I dismissively talked myself out of playing on Brown Sugar, his previous album. Because at the time, I was just like, eh, soul singers in the 90s, whatever. Like, I'm not doing this thing, you know, R&B guys. Like, nothing about soul uh, singing uh, had moved me uh, from any 90s offering the same way that it did when Otis Redding, Stevie Wonder, you know, Lou Rawls, like, soul music. Um, So, you know... They were like, yeah, he wants you to drum on his record. And I looked at him like, uh, I'll pass. And then I got Brown Sugar and was like, oh, my God, this guy could be the one. And so I've been trying to figure out how to get back in his good graces so I can be there for round two. Now, the thing is, is that because of this rivalry thing we have with the Fugees, like the show was a certain way. But when I saw D'Angelo, I decided to call an audible and basically have have a conversation with just him which meant that I was now about to throw my entire band off because what I would normally do for a particular intro of a song I'm now saying all right I'm gonna do this very obscure Prince drum roll and see if he gets it so I'm doing the Prince drum roll instead and my band's looking at me like what the fuck are you doing just try to impress D'Angelo. Right, but they didn't get that. And you know, and I'm I'm just calling the song like go along with it, go along with it. So they're they're looking at me like you're thwarting and throwing off the entire show. But the only person that mattered to me in the room that night was and when he heard that intro, he stood at attention. It was like, yo. And I, when I seen that, I was like, Yeah, I got you, motherfucker. And then <laughs> And then, like, that whole show was the first time that the drumming I'm known for now started to come to life. And, again, throwing my band off. Like, why are you playing like a like a drunk three-year-old? Like, why are you playing off rhythm? Why are you, like, come on, you know? And the thing was, I had to put the bait on the hook and throw it out there. And once he grabbed it, I was like, nope, I'm not letting go. Like, this is how I'm going to drum from now on. So he got it. They were mad as hell at me that night. But he got it. And, you know, I felt good because then the Fuji, all the Fuji's records skipped. So they had a bad performance <laughs> that night. So <laughs> we won. You, but, um, yeah, after that, then he knew. Like, that was, the, that was the African communication thing. Like, I had to use my drum to tell him, okay, we speak the same language. Mm-hmm. And... He came to Philly to do a song on our album. It was the last day of recording. And we had like seven hours left. So we just continued to play. And then it was like, well, come by next week. Come by next week. And then the fourth time, I'm at Electric Lady Studios for what will be a a five-year tutorial and education and probably one of the greatest creative periods of of my that was that was my becoming an adult you know um just every day like i was youtube 
because I was still doing these mammoth Grateful Dead like tours with the Roots, spending all my off days at Electric Lady with him, um, but mostly traveling the world, collecting any and every videotape performance of some vintage, you know, Al Green in 1974 and, you know, Graham Central Station in 1976 and bringing it back to Electric Lady so we could study it. And then after we watch it like two or three times, then we come and then play what we just watched. And after four hours of messing around, suddenly, you know, he'll change the key and I'll say, hey, what you doing? No, 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 keep on playing the rhythm. And then suddenly the morphing of a new song starts. And that's pretty much why Voodoo took five years to make those 12 songs because that was the, the slow, arduous process of digging and digging and morphing and digging and morphing and then coming up with, you know. Can you? We we had a similar, back? we had a similar experience with um, with um, the first Beastie Boys album, which took I think three years to make, and it was the same reason. It was like um, really, it wasn't. Yeah, it was just like looking for these inspirational jumping off points and then messing with those in the studio to make it an interesting track and um and then we would write to it but but that would happen it happened over a long period of time i can remember um i might have told you this story before malcolm but i can remember being at a different session and mike d calling me really upset it's like how come our album's not done yet it's like it, it, you can't rush it. It's like you can't. It's not. It's not. Um, right. It it comes when it comes. You know. It's not a. Uh, it's not automatic. Um, so it's it reminds me of that that experience of that sort what's, of what's what's the long what's the jam session process like for that time period? Like, who's the person that's like, hey, let's program something you know this particular way and backwards mask it and or or even like the starts and stops in in like uh the new style or yeah just okay. that that's so, another life-changing album for me by the way like licensed to ill like life-changing world-stopping life-changing but good so but it was done with the same sort of precision you're talking about and and then it would have been more often than not it would have just been me and an engineer in the, in the room working on the music for a long time until I had something that was exciting enough to to even uh feel comfortable playing for the band you know like it had to the music really had to be right first and so many of the drops and things didn't happen till late. It, it was all rooted in the vocals. So we would first there would be the the basic track, which would be uh, either samples or it was really loops then because there was no sampler yet. Mm-hmm. So it was either loops or direct DJing in parts, program drums. I would play rudimentary like guitar stuff if it if it needed to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would get the tracks to that point. Then we would usually write the words, which would happen over a while. And the, and we were always collecting lyrics. Like um, me and Adam Horowitz would go out to Danceteria pretty much every night and just goof around and try to make each other laugh. And if the other person laughed, it was usually a, a, a usable line. And <laughs> just always like little tiny pieces of paper with uh, scribbled notes on them. Almost like and a comedian. Would, that's crazy. Yeah, it very much was like that. It and and it was, I would say that we were as inspired by Monty Python and Steve Martin as we were by anybody doing music. It was. It really was about inside jokes and making each other laugh. Wow. Rick, do we have any? Um, I'm conscious of the fact that we've we're yeah, using is, up a lot that's... of your time. I do have one request though. Okay. And that is, you mentioned way back when that you played. D'Angelo, that little bit that lured him in. Mm-hmm. Can you can you play that? We have a drum set over there. Could you can you reproduce that? Do you, do you... <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll give you an example. Hang on. Is there a drum key though? Yes, there is. Okay, so 
So, so the thing is, is that um, by that point in 1996, I was very guarded of my um, kind of uh, strict, disciplined, quantized drumming. Um, because I didn't want anyone to think of the Roots as lesser than a hip-hop group. So for me, I had spent five years to that point being the most disciplined, like, lifeless drummer. So, you know, like, my version of drumming was just, you know, to play the most disciplined... Like, no dynamics, no, none of those things. Wait, let me put the headphones on, sorry. And so, um, the, the difference is, um, in seeing D'Angelo and knowing what language he spoke, I wanted him to know I spoke that language too. So, previous... Previously, like, you know, I was speaking the language of hip-hop, which was just like. But once you see D'Angelo in the audience, suddenly this this slightly becomes like somewhere between 4-4 four, four meter and 12-8 meter. And if I really want to. If I really want to exaggerate it, like you, you fluctuate, like it's, it's kind of like my version of Thelonious Monk's talking about like the, the sort of atonal, like the notes in between the notes. And it's like a broken drum machine. Yes. And the, the worst I played, the more excited he got. And that's the thing, like to do this, like you have to put your ego aside because every drummer was about. Evil Knievel, like Gospel Chops. That's the thing with drummers. This, if you go to gospelchops.com, you'll see some of the most amazing, uh, you know, drum players that would put Neil Peart to shame, like that sort of thing. But um, playing with him, there there was a song on his first album called Dreaming Eyes of Mine, in which, you know, at the time I asked his producer, uh, 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 Bob Power, I was like, okay, did you guys like break the drum machine or something? Because the way that it was programmed, th this is how that song sounded, which made me knew that he spoke that drunk language. His drumming was like, his programming was like, Which, you know, once Bob convinced me, like, no, we did that on purpose. Then I was like, uh, okay, I, don't, I think you're just saying that. But then once I heard Wu-Tang Clan, in which the RZA sort of does that with his production, but I kind of feel like it's the accidental tourist, like, oh, dog, that's hip-hop. Like, I just, I programmed it offbeat, like, you know, that sort of thing. Once, once we got to that place and that level, then... Then I just okay. This this is the new language. I'm gonna throw away everything that my mom and dad put me in school for, and I'm just gonna drum like a five year old from now on. But really, it's just being human. That's that's all I consider it. You know. Were you when you were playing that way for D'Angelo? So you're he's in the audience and you're watching him while you're doing this. He stood up and pointed. He stood up, pointed, and I just saw like. Either he pointed or he gave me like the the the, the black power fist sign, like, uh -huh. yo, <laughs> and he said like he the sentence was, yo, that's my drummer or that's my brother, like, yeah. I just I had to let him know, I get you, I underestimated you, I'm sorry, I'm trying to be down, I speak the same language too, and he he got it, he got it in that moment, yeah. I yeah. love that so much. I think if you if you didn't have the training that you had in the precision 
before, you couldn't do the drunk style as as well as you do. You're right. I don't I don't recommend people. And you know that's kind of crazy that you say that because even now young drummers are on YouTube going to the top of Mount Fuji to learn the fanciest thing. And I tell them all the time, like you got to start. You got to go to first grade first. Like you don't start off getting your doctorate. And my dad was a notorious. Like he loved that whole James Brown. I'm finding you five ten dollars for that role. You know, my dad's doing oldie stuff, so basically all of his stuff is all the same. Like, and in my head, you know, I'm doing this at twelve, at twelve, and I'm having a conversation with myself, like, okay, if I do a clean fill, maybe he won't find me twenty bucks. So then I, oh, I got away with that. And then when the bridge comes, then I'm like, okay, I'm going to do something like. And already, 10, 20, up. I'm back here. <laughs> like, he will not, my father did not hesitate ever to just, he wouldn't even look at me. You just look at his right hand, and if he flashed a five, five, 10, 15, 20. Like, so, you know, that's that's where I really got my my disciplined chops from like not wanting to have my salary at the end of the night <laughs> thank god for your dad yeah man how has your taste in music changed from the time you were a little kid lately i've been exploring the stuff i shouldn't have not shouldn't have been listening to but it's like okay i'm a member of a columbia house record club like why did I get Debbie Gibson's Out of the Blue album? You know, why I'm thinking of, uh, you know, what, I mean, the critic in me now, like once I discovered Rolling Stone, then suddenly I became like a, a rock snob critic and I know like <laughs> buying those record guides and whatnot. But I'm like, yeah, like Christine 16 was the first Kiss 45 I ever brought. And, you know, I love Kiss Meets the Phantom. And then only reading on later that like oh that that was their jump the shark moment or that sort of thing and and I mean I know all opinions are subjective critically about acts and whatnot but as far as like how I listen to it um, it's weird now like I wish I wish I could. I mean, the way that I'm describing getting an orgasm from music, that excitement. Um, it doesn't happen so much now because, you know, I believe that part of me knows better. So it's like, okay, you know that songs that you consider good, songs that you consider bad. But then I'm like, but then there are songs that you know are effective and not effective. And especially as a DJ, that world always conflicts with me. So songs that I wouldn't normally listen to in my spare time, I know are crucial and work for me well at DJ gigs. But now I'm interested in, in telling stories when I DJ. So I plan these long, I, I, I plan these meticulous, scientifically proven, like, it's like a beautiful mind. Like I'm doing these math graphics of the songs in this key and okay, this is an E flat and then the Beatles modulate to D and then I could put human league after that. And da, 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 da. So that's how I craft my DJ gigs. Now to give you an example, I did the gig of my life, a six hour DJ gig in central park for the Hamilton uh, after party for the Tonys. So from 11 PM to five in the morning, I mean, these people, I, I was God Every song was perfectly segued, was in the right key. It told a story. People would write me letters. Oh my God, there was the most life-changing display of music. You went from Kermit the Frog to and I did everything. Anything with music from Benny Goodman on down to Drake from 1930, I covered it. And they ate it up like nerds. I did the same shit at the White House two days later for Obama's last night in the white house oh that's that famous party fail oh yeah it was it was okay so two hours into it 
he taps me on the shoulder. He says, hey, uh, you know, you're doing a good job. I, I, I love the, uh, I, I love the uh, Donna Summer and the old school hip hop and the jazz. And but uh, look at them, they they want to have fun too. And he's pointing to his kids. They're having a sit in. They're having a sit in, and they're just like looking at me like, nah, none of this shit works. And ah uh, man. So then I became the DJ I hated. I'm like googling. All right, let me go to Spotify, see what kids are listening to, like that sort of thing. So I became that guy, the guy I hate the most. And then suddenly that that night became Animal House. Uh-huh. Like it was the most debaucherous, the most, I mean, I could describe the t- Smells Like Teen Spirit video to give you an ex- but it was like that crazy. They consider it the best night they ever had in their lives. And I'm having... Uh, I heard some story, possibly apocryphal, that involves Usher getting into a, getting into it on the dance floor with who? Okay, with Barack Obama. Like they're (laughs) they're 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 dancing, like and he's coming up to me like, "Uh, uh, play a, you you have French Montana, and I was like, sir, uh, I don't have the clean versions of that. He's looking like "Uh, we're all adults here. Go go play it. I was like, sir, I'm not gonna play pop that pussy, bitch. What you working with? You know, it literally like I'm like you, you, you listen to that grant like all these presidents are like looking at me in the hall of presidents like shaking their head like whatever. I, I will say that Jimmy at, Carter looking down. At, everyone was doing yeah. that at one point. I like I was really depressed because I had planned to make my grand statement. Like they were going to declare a national holiday after me because I'm the seg, I'm I'm the feng shui DJ. Matt, like I knew I was going to get a MacArthur Genius Grant for this shit, and um, at one point, you know, again I'm like looking on the internet, songs kids like, and Springsteen walks in, and I'm telling you, it, it, it's. You you can't imagine a wilder like think of think of the Eagles backstage stories think of Freddie Mercury's uh, Queen Jazz release album party t- tales think of Animal House yeah. think of think of the like think of everything and that's how wild that party was and Springsteen walks in and instantly Patty's like ah oh, we're gonna party he pulls him no oh. and he looks at me. He gives me that look and shakes his head a little bit like, I know you know better than this. <laughs> and I just, I felt ashamed like, yeah, I'm sorry. I sold out. Like, Wait, why, does the, why does the world's greatest set list not work at the White House? What went wrong? So here were his words. Yeah. So, you know, I, I was on the verge of tears. Because I built this up to be like, this is going to be my grand statement. I've been waiting for eight years to have this moment. And whenever you build something up in your head and it doesn't go out in your favor, you're you're going to have a nervous, you're going to have a panic attack. Yeah. And I knew I was going to have a panic attack. So I was like trying to like exit stage left and get out of there. And he's, no, 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 come back. And you know, they're all like, play more. And I got to go. And, okay, thanks, thanks, thanks. So afterwards, I'm walking. He's like, so you, you have a good time? I was like, he said, no, did you have a good time? I was like, no. Yeah, it was cool. Because I, then I didn't want to make it about me. Like, this is his last night. Yeah. His night to get loose and everything. They're all, everyone's crazy drunk and all this stuff. Like, this was his night. So I was just like, yeah, it was cool. And he's like, what's wrong? I was like, yeah, you don't want to hear it, man. I'm cool. He said, no, t- tell me. And he's all right, let me guess. You, you're, you're like an artist. And, uh. You, you, you planned uh, your 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 grand artistic vision of how you thought the night should go, and it didn't work out. And you're overthinking it, and you're thinking that uh, you know, I sucked. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah. He said, so he tells me a story. He says, do I remember? He talks about Charleston and the Dylan Roof situation with the massacre. He said he knew that 30 seconds after 30 seconds after that uh the the shooting happened that he was going to have to speak at that funeral. So he had crafted, he had instantly knew it's like okay, 
I got to craft the speech of my career. This is going to be my profiles and courage. You know, ask not what your country can do. So he says he has the speech of his life, like ready to go. He's been working on it, perfecting it. And he goes down um, to Charleston, South Carolina. And he knew three minutes into that speech, it wasn't going to work. And so he's like going in and say, he's like, I'm not, I'm not reaching the people. And he's like looking at his people trying to warn him in some sort of baseball signal that I'm going to go rogue and, and freestyle. And they're getting upset. They're like, Oh, you're the worst when you go on your own without us approving the script. And he said, some just told me, Barry, start singing amazing grace. So then he starts singing amazing grace. Right. And he's like, and everything turned around. He says, you know what I did? He said, I served the people. I served the people. I saw that something was wrong. I figured, how can I fix this? I took a moment. I breathed, collected myself, and I served the people. He said, and what you did tonight, you saw that something was a little off, and you served the people. He's like, and there's, there's, there's honor in that. You did the right thing. We had the time of our lives. You served the people. So you should be proud of yourself. Now, do you feel better? No, I don't. <laughs> you cannot believe you, 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 so, you didn't give me any love. As, as the way, no, I mean, it, it really messed me up. After I told my man, I stopped a, a majority of 2016. I rejected like 80 percent of the gigs like i was i was depressed i was just like if you fail at records like what what good is your life like um and then that's when i started my thing like well i'm gonna stop djing at nightclubs and just do it for the kids and Mm -hmm. hopefully like when these parents bring their three-year-old kids here they'll see me the same way that i was doing on the block party and oh i want to do that that's what that was my mission but um no his wife asked me to curate her uh uh her book becoming so and again they asked me to just put like 30 songs together and i wound up putting 1400 1400 songs (laughs) they're like amir we didn't ask for the story of my life but we'll take it anyway so you know that's i i had to redeem myself